blessing. Appreciate Pam and all that she has done to help coordinate uh, the music this month. And what a joy to be able to sing together again this morning. Galatians chapter number 4. Galatians chapter number 4. And I know that this is a a little bit of a a challenging time to bring a message on a Christmas day. And I know our thoughts might be on some unopened presents, uh, maybe on a a meal uh, that is before us, maybe some prep uh, that we still have to do. And I know that there is a lot uh, on our hearts and minds this morning. And uh, so uh, I uh, really will try to have us out of here by one o'clock or so. And uh, so, no, seriously, seriously, I do, I do want to keep this uh, as, as brief uh, as possible, and yet still, uh, with the Lord's help, uh, work our way through uh, this great passage of Scripture. Galatians chapter number 4 and verse number 1, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all. We have to understand in the context here that the book of Galatians was written by the Apostle Paul by the inspiration of God in order to deal with a group of false teachers who were preaching and teaching justification by works. So in Galatians 4 in verse 1, Paul is stating that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all. He is actually saying that before we got saved, we were under tutors and governors. We were under the law. That was our only hope of salvation. Outside of Christ, not yet a child of God. I know this goes against the grain of our culture that says everybody is a child of God. No, actually, John 8 and verse 44 says that we are of the devil. We are a child of the devil. And it's not until we receive Christ as our Savior that we become a child of God. There's a universalist, Unitarian church, and there are others besides that church that teach that we're all children of God. Yes, we're all made in the image of God. We all have dignity because we're made in God's image, but we're not all a child of God until we get saved, until we receive Christ as our Savior. So in the meantime... It says, and he's using a cultural illustration. He's he's borrowing from the culture and helping them understand that the child is considered a servant, though he is the child of this person. Often in the case of a wealthy family, there would be a tutor or a governor or both that would help in the care of the children, in the care of the house. And Paul is dealing with this false gospel that is being taught by these false preachers, these false teachers, that are saying that in order for a person to be justified, in order for a person to be saved, they must keep the Mosaic law. They must keep the law. Their salvation, their justification comes by works. And Paul is extremely serious about this, because in Galatians 1, in verse number 8, he says, But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. And he uses a strong term there for accursed, one of the strongest in all of the Greek language. May it never be. God forbid. 
This is something that is cursed by God to preach any other gospel, to mix faith with works, which ultimately then eliminates faith, which puts salvation by our works. Any gospel that adds to or subtracts from Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation, any other gospel is a false gospel. And Paul is concerned because there are false teachers and they are smooth talkers and they are borrowing from the law and they know the scriptures and they're twisting and they're turning and they're adding and they're subtracting. And Paul says they're dangerous. They're preaching another gospel. And he says, though we or an angel even from heaven, as Satan will often do, he will masquerade. His angels will be as angels of light. And false teaching often comes packaged in bright, colorful packaging. Oh yes, false teaching can sometimes come with horns and goblins and dark and mysterious and scary and evil looking. But many, many, many times false teaching is packaged bright and colorful, subtle and deceiving. The old illustration about rat poison which is, I don't understand exactly how much. I haven't looked at a case of rat poison for a while, but I think it's in the 99 percentile of good food. And 1% or less is actual poison, but that's all it takes to kill the rats. And I remember living in Florida, and I remember us having rats in our shed, and my dad putting out the rat poison, I'll never forget, coming out, as a little boy, a first or second grade kid, and coming out, and there was this huge rat dead on the back porch. Now, I was only a six or seven year old kid, and that rat looked like as big as me. You know, it wasn't that big, but those were some big rats. And my dad had a terrible time in Florida getting rid of those rats in our shed, and he would use that rat poison, and we'd find those rats. And that's the way the devil is. He often packages false teaching in a Nice, colorful, pretty package. He often mixes truth with air to try to cover up the air. He often takes the air and the false teaching and he puts thick coats of icing and sugar on it to make it look good, to make it appealing. But the passing pleasures of sin will damn and will condemn. And So Paul is very concerned that the Galatians not buy into this lie, this false gospel. And he goes back to the law and he says, we have to remember the purpose of the law. And he says there in verse 2, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. This child, though a child of the homeowner, the, the Lord of the house, He is a servant under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. So the law of Moses functions as a tutor, as a guardian. A tutor was often a slave who was in charge of the children, particularly the boys of the household, because the firstborn son would be the heir, and obviously the sons would continue the family name, The Jews had this kind of arrangement, Romans and Greeks. Now, again, this is particularly among the wealthy. Not every family could afford a household servant 
or a slave who could then be the, the person in charge of the children. There are some homes here in America, some wealthy places, some wealthy people, homes, families that will have a, uh, a tutor for the children. Uh, we'll have a nanny. I think that's often what we refer to them as. I, I've known very few families through the years, but I did know one family that had a nanny, and the nanny would drop the kids off at school and pick them up, and the parents would check in, I guess, <laughs> once in a while. I just, it was totally foreign to, to me, but there are some homes that, in America even, uh, they, they might have a nanny. But it was not unusual in Greek and Roman culture and even in Jewish culture if there was a particularly wealthy home, wealthy household, that they would have a tutor and even sometimes a governor. So a governor, you see in verse 2, a tutor who is this guardian who is often the one in charge of the children, but there's also this governor. This is the house manager who had authority over the household servants or slaves and assigned them tasks and chores and responsibilities. We might think of Joseph who worked for Potiphar. He would have been the governor. He would have been the one who was the household manager. He had authority over the servants. He cared for the responsibilities of the home, maybe the landscaping and the the building and maintenance, so to speak. So the law of Moses functioned when we are outside of Christ, understanding in the Jewish culture, understanding that the Jews, having been under the law, and now these false teachers who are saying you must keep the the Mosaic law in order to be saved, Paul is having to take these Jews back He's having to take even these Gentiles who are beginning to buy into this false teaching that they too have to keep the law in order to be saved. And he's taking them back to what the tutor and the governor, the law, really functioned as. As a tutor, as a governor. This word child, this word child here actually refers to a child that in some cases, in some contexts, could refer to a child who was even not old enough yet to talk. Certainly not able to take on adult privileges and responsibilities. So then we take this analogy and we understand it in the context of a Jewish home. And it was also the case in the Greek culture and the Roman culture to a certain degree. There would be a coming of age ceremony. There would be a coming of age where the father would say this Son is now a man. Sometimes I wish we had that here in America still. Sometimes I wish that we could say, okay, you are going to become a man at this point in time, and you have to go through certain uh, man, masculine types of responsibilities and arrangements in order to be declared a man. In the Jewish culture, we would know it as the bar mitzvah, typically around the age of 13, And there were ways in which the son had to be prepared for that bar mitzvah, for that coming of age. I don't know exactly what it looked like in the Greek or the Roman culture. But it's not that unusual in in even Eastern cultures to this day to still have some sort of coming of age ceremony. Again, this is not a normal practice here in America. In America... 
it's kind of the age of 18, kind of. But nothing really is that magical about the age of 18, except now you can go to jail, and you can go to prison, and you can be tried as an adult. And you have to enter the, the draft um, and all that, okay? There's certain things that come with age 18, and then in America also at age 21. And we have those ages kind of out there, but there's not a ceremony that we necessarily practice. As a matter of fact, I think we have a little bit more of a problem in our culture of young men never growing up. I think we have more of a Peter Pan mentality, never growing up, always staying as a boy. I think that that's our bigger problem. And we have men, young boys, young men who are being emasculated and feminized instead of being masculine and being men. And we need more young men being men and taking on the roles and the responsibilities of guiding, protecting, and providing and being the kind of man that God would have us to be. And uh, it's a burden for me with three uh, young men in, in my household, and one of them just a few months from becoming 18. And uh, my dad, he, he never told me when I turned 18 that I was going to get a fancy hot rod car and get the keys and get to do whatever I wanted to do. He basically said, as long as you're under my household, you're going to follow my rules. Now, there's a certain amount of adult treating, I'll treat you like an adult to a certain degree, but if you're going to drive my car, you might as well start paying the insurance and paying the gas, and if you don't want to live by my rules, then you can go find a place to live, and you can support yourself and find out what it's really like to have to put food on the table and clothes on your back and pay insurance and all that. My dad made it clear. Now, I went off to college, and and I graduated from college and from seminary, and I came back as a 20-something-year-old, and I was uh, madly in love uh, with Kelly, and I uh, was looking for a place to, to serve in the ministry, in vocational ministry, and uh, my dad took me aside, and I was now about 25 years old, and he said, you're only living here because you're getting married soon, and because you're getting ready to go into the ministry. He said, if you live here much longer, and you're not getting married, and you're not getting into the ministry, then you either start paying us rent, or you go find a place to live. Now, my dad said that very nicely, but my dad meant business. He was like, I'm not supporting you. You've been to college, you've been to seminary, you've got uh, a fiancé, and you are looking for vocational ministry, and you have something that the Lord seems to be directing you toward. But if that doesn't work out, and she dumps you, or she doesn't, if that job doesn't work out, and you stay with her, and you're in love, then you find a place. You're not living with us. And he just made it just, just, just the way my dad could do it. He could say it, and he could say it in a certain way. And I was like, yes, sir. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you know, and the Lord took care of us. But I think we need more of that. Unfortunately, in our culture, we're losing uh, the manliness in our, in our culture. But this, becoming, this, this coming of age ceremony was extremely important in the Jewish culture. And still is, from what I understand, among Orthodox Jewish families. But it was also in the Greek and the Roman culture. So the tutor, the guardian, was for that child before they came of age. And the Mosaic law, the Mosaic law was that tutor, was that governor, in a sense, for us before we came to Christ. The law accompanied the child, functioning in the same role as a servant, 
not yet declared, authorized as a child. The law accompanied the child as the servant. The law taught. The law regulated. The law prepared the child for sonship. The the law pointed to the full rights and privileges of being a son. But no child could keep the law perfectly. So this is where we have to understand the analogy in Paul's teaching, in Paul's explanation to the Galatians. Even so, we, verse 3, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. The law could not make a child a son unless the child could keep the law perfectly, outwardly and inwardly. And no child could ever do that. Now, understanding in the cultural analogy, in the cultural understanding of this coming of age, we understand that the child had to meet certain responsibilities, and as long as the child did not rebel against the standards, inwardly or outwardly, i.e. the prodigal son had a brother, the prodigal son went out and wasted his inheritance in rebellion. The son stayed home. The other son, the brother, stayed home, but he inwardly rebelled against the father. Eventually, the prodigal repented, submitted, got saved, and became a son in the home, whereas the brother, we are left at the end of that story with the question of whether the brother would remain in the home. Because the brother, who did not go out and waste his inheritance, he inwardly was rebellious and would not even go into the feast celebrating the return of his brother. So he was inwardly rebellious and was at the point of forfeiting his sonship, his inheritance. So we have to understand the analogy, we have to understand some of the cultural understandings and settings of the day. But ultimately the point is that no child kept the law, was a perfect servant as being under the tutor and under the governor, having the standard set, this is what you have to do. No son could keep, no child could keep that perfectly, inwardly or outwardly. And Paul is saying that there is a bondage that comes from the world. We're in bondage under the elements of the world. Outside of Christ, we are in bondage to the world, to the world system, to the world's attitude and rebellion. And none of us keep the law perfectly. We've all failed in at least one point. And as James said, if we break the law even in one small area, we've broken the whole law. One chain, one link of the chain is broken. The whole chain is broken. But we see here in verse number 4, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, 
made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So no child could keep the law perfectly. Now, there would be a coming of age ceremony. The father would appoint a time for the bar mitzvah, for whatever the ceremony was called in the Greek and Roman culture. And this is when the child is declared a man. The father would appoint that time, would sense that the son has fulfilled his responsibilities, has matured enough, has done enough, has shown enough, and inwardly and outwardly there is a submission and an obedience and a maturity that the father will say, okay, here is the time, and we will set the date for the ceremony. And in the analogy, Paul is saying, by the inspiration of God, God the Father set the time for his son, Jesus Christ, to come. We couldn't do it on our own. We couldn't become a child of God by our own good works, by keeping the law. We failed inwardly. We failed outwardly. We are a sinner by nature and by choice. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. We needed someone to pay the penalty for our sin, for breaking the law. Someone who could fulfill the law completely and perfectly. God the Father sent his son. He sent him at the perfect time. And that's the first point this morning. As we work through this passage, we see in the fullness of time, we see the perfect time God sent His Son. Christ was born during a time in history known as the Pax Romana, a period of about 200 years during the Roman Empire when the empire experienced a great measure of peace and doubled its size. This era of Pax Romana began at 20, roughly 27 BC when Octavius Caesar became the emperor of the Roman Empire and he is known to us as Caesar Augustus. This continued until about 180 AD under Marcus Aurelius. Yes, there were some battles, there was some violence, but not at a large scale, not in any way disruptive to the Roman rule or that threatened the expansion of the empire in any way. It was also the perfect time because there was a vast road system, a vast road system. I love maps. I love geography. I love history. My dad would get the map, the old Ram McNally map. We'd buy one every year, the big one. And some of you remember the day when we actually had to have those fold accordion maps. Those were wonderful, weren't they? You'd, have to be, you'd be driving along, and you'd have to put that map on the steering wheel, and you'd be doing this kind of thing, especially us as men, because we wouldn't want to stop and ask for directions, right? And I remember my dad putting that map out on the living room floor, and he was, or on the table, and he was saying, now the blue road means this, the red road means this, this is an interstate, this is a state road, this is what this symbol means. Now we just ask Google or Siri. Now we just put it in a GPS. But for me, even though I use GPS a lot, I still like to get the map out and expand it and contract it on my phone or on my computer because I love I loved to see. 
And, and I'll still do this. I'll still turn my GPS off, and I've done this around Lafayette, and uh, I, I don't do it as much as I used to, but I'll turn GPS off, and then I'll just try an, a different route. And I'll end up in, in, I ended up in downtown Lafayette one time, and uh, poor Phyllis, I think I scared her half to death because we were driving at night and I missed the stop sign. You know, I think Kelly was the one yelling at me. But, you know, I, I, was, I was just, I was trying a different route. I wanted to trust my men. I wanted to see. I remember being in Greenville, in Greenville, South Carolina. They took the rabbit trails and the possum trails and they just paved them. And, and so I would be down there, and this is in the days before GPS, and I would just drive around, just trying to just find my way around. And, and I have a pretty good sense of directions. And uh, it's not the best, but it's, it's pretty good. I can usually figure my way out and, and figure north from south and all that sort of thing. But the, the, the Roman Empire had a road system that was an in, 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 in incredible piece of technology for its day. Nothing ever had been built like this ever in history. The Roman Empire had 75,000 miles of roads. Moved armies, people could travel, trade would go from Portugal to the Middle East, and then about the same time that Jesus is born, and during this Pax Romana, the Silk Route or the Silk Road was connected to the Roman road system so that trade could go all the way to the Far East and back again. So Roman emperors were beginning to wear silk. And they would get spices from the Far East. And that even became a status symbol because the wealthy could get the silk and the spices from the Far East and have them and show them off. So we have connections through the Roman road system at the time that Christ was born from Portugal on the Atlantic coast all the way to the Far East, to China, and the Silk Road and the Roman road system. Incredible. So there was a time of relative peace. There was a vast road system. And then also there was a common language. There was a common language. So in the perfect time, we understand in the cultural historical context, there was a time of relative peace in the Roman Empire. There was this vast road system, and then there was a common language. Koine Greek is the original language of the New Testament. It was the trade language of the day. Because of the empire, the Greek empire under Alexander the Great, and Alexander the Great there had been a Greek culture that had been imposed upon the known world, and the Romans adopted that and synchronized that and used that. So you have the synchronization of the Greek culture and the Roman culture, and we still understand some of that today. There are TV programs, there are books, there are whole series of fictional literature on the Greek gods and Roman gods and there's still a certain amount of curiosity and, and people are, are still uh, following and reading some of that. It has, even though it has metamorphosized through the years, there is still an element of that even in American culture. There's a curiosity and an interest in that. But the Koine Greek, the, the common Greek, this was not the classical Greek of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. This was the common everyday Greek, and this would kind of be like English is today. You would often, and I'm not big in the business world, but I've got a little bit of experience um, 
in, in seeing some of the technology and with Zoom and Skype and the different kinds of technology that allow for people to communicate. English has kind of taken this role in the business world today. English is kind of the common language. So you might have a Russian or someone from Germany or somewhere in Europe talking to someone down in South America and they don't know Spanish or they don't know German or Russian or whatever the European language is and they might use English to communicate because that's the one language that they had in common. In America and with business, that is not terribly uncommon. I think even uh, Zelensky, who came uh, just this, this past week, I think he even had enough English that he was able to speak uh, with some broken English uh, to, to Congress. There, there's a commonality to the English language that kind of compares to the Koine Greek of that day. That is significant because with that came, yes, trade and business, transportation, but also there was a level of education that rose under the Roman Empire from the Greek culture, which elevated knowledge, and the Romans, which did similar. There was an increase in education, and with that common language, think about the ability of the gospel. Think of the ability of the truth regarding Jesus Christ to go across the world on a vast road system, with a common language, and with many, many, many people having a rise in their education and their knowledge of the language, the gospel, the truth, was able to go forth in exponential ways. It's amazing. We see in the Mediterranean Sea, the area around the Mediterranean Sea, that the majority of the world's population was in close proximity. Paul could get on a a ship and sail across the Mediterranean up into Rome and There were islands and there were peoples all around the Mediterranean because of the central trade and the ability for boats to travel across the Mediterranean Sea and have access to the Atlantic. There were millions of people in a relatively close proximity where the gospel could reach them. I don't have time to get into uh, the textual evidence for the New Testament, but it's absolutely fascinating Over 5,000 Greek manuscripts supportive of the New Testament. No other book, not even the Iliad and the Odyssey, have that kind of textual evidence. But nobody doubts that, what's his name, Homer, wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. But people question the authority of the scriptures, and yet there's 5,000 plus manuscripts. That speaks even to God's perfect timing, historically and culturally speaking, with the roads and the language and the trade and the business and all that was going on. You have the Jewish homeland. People were able to travel to Jerusalem for the major feast days. And the gospel was able to spread to all the corners of the world. Even in the captivity, Daniel and his three friends had shared the truth while they were in captivity in Babylon. And that is probably how the wise men knew the gospel and probably as saved men came and worshipped Christ. Because the wise men had probably been exposed to the truth that had been proclaimed by Daniel and his friends and other Jews who had been in captivity. Paul took the gospel on his missionary journeys to much of the Roman Empire. The apostles preached the gospel to the known world during the book of Acts and beyond. Converts and missionaries took the gospel to the furthest reaches of the globe. 
Missionaries through the years have told stories of the gospel and a small remnant of believers being in places that seem obscure and unknown. But missionaries come there and they find remnants of missionaries. They find vestiges of the gospel. If you've ever been to the Ark Encounter, to the Creation Museum, in the Ark Encounter they have a whole exhibit that talks about the different stories, the different flood stories. It's fascinating because all of those flood stories came from the real, true event, the great flood, the Genesis flood of Genesis 6. Where did those other stories come from? They came from the true story where the gospel had gone forth. And those other stories were exaggerated or added to or embellished or taken away. But they all point to the fact that the gospel went forward, went forth throughout the world. It's the perfect time, the fullness of time. We know that some places, the 1040 window, many of those countries, those regions rejected the gospel through the years, and now the gospel is still going to those places. There's an underground church, there's persecution, but still the gospel is going forth in those places. Michael Garamy, who's been here, I follow his prayer letters, he continues to take the gospel as best he can into Turkey and to Iran. There's an underground church in China and other places. The gospel has gone forth, churches have sprung up, revivals have broken out, and missionaries have been sent, and we continue to have that great commission. But it speaks to the fullness of time. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, at the perfect time. We would think, oh, wouldn't it be better now with social media? Wouldn't it be now with the internet? No. God knew what He was doing. He knew that the internet age wasn't the age to send his son Jesus Christ. God didn't need social media. God didn't need the internet. God didn't need television. God didn't need Hollywood. God didn't need events and all kinds of ticket sales and big personalities to proclaim the gospel. He took 12 men who were basically weak and foolish of the world and he used them to take the gospel, and he continues to want to use us, weak and as foolish as we are in the eyes of the world, to continue to proclaim the gospel. The perfect time, and then we see the perfect gift. The perfect gift. We see here in verse 4, when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son. The perfect gift is a person, Jesus Christ. Fully man, born of a woman, fully man in order to identify with and take man's place as the penalty for his sin. Yet fully God, 100% man, 100% God, fully God in order to be of the value and efficacy necessary to atone for sin for all eternity. Born of a woman, made under the law. He was the perfect sacrifice. He completely and perfectly obeyed God's law. 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 15, Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. The perfect gift in the form of the God-man who paid the penalty for our sin, who completely and perfectly fulfilled all the law. And now His righteousness can be credited to our account. We can be justified in God's sight through the righteousness of Jesus Christ applied to our account when we repent and believe. 
Romans 6 and verse 23 speaks of this perfect gift, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Isaiah 53 speaks of the fact that Christ bore our griefs, he carried our sorrows. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, he was tempted like as we are, yet without sin. In 1 Peter 2 and verse 24, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. Jesus Christ is the perfect gift. God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, and then verse 5, to redeem them that we're under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. The perfect time, the perfect gift, and then we see the perfect redemption. The perfect redemption. Redemption is God buying us back from sin as we place our faith and trust in Him. Paradise lost, paradise regained. We were lost in our sins, slaves of sin, and He redeemed us. He bought us out of the slave market of sin and redeemed us and made us righteous in Christ. I remember in Terre Haute, when we were at a ministry there in Terre Haute, there was an English teacher who had taken a set of books, English books, and she had given them away or taken them to Goodwill or Salvation Army or something like that, and she forgot all about them. And then if I remember right, she was at the Cover Bridge Festival, the Mecca of all yard sales, the Cover Bridge Festival. And she's going through one of the booths, and she sees a set of books that look just like the set of books that she had given away years ago. And she starts flipping through the books, and she starts seeing notes, and she flipped open the cover, and there was her name from years ago when she had those books that she had given away or sold or whatever the case may have been. And she bought the books back. She redeemed them. They were hers before. We were his. We're made, created by God in his image. But sin broke that fellowship. It has to be restored. If that's, if that's not restored through salvation, then we go to an eternal hell and we're separated from God forever. But He redeemed us who were under the law, under the tutors and governors, incapable of keeping the law. There's no way we could become a son except by God, except through His righteousness, except through the payment of His Son. He redeemed us. He bought us back. He loved us so much. He desires that reconciliation, as we read in 2 Corinthians 5. And we have that ministry of reconciliation given to us. But redemption, Paul makes mention of the fact that we're no longer under the bondage of the world. We're redeemed by God. When we trust Christ, when we repent of our sins and put our faith and trust in Him. Titus 2 and verse 14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. 1 Peter 1 and verse 18, for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Romans 3 and verse 24, 
being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Perfect redemption. But then we see adoption. Verse number 5, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. There is something special about hearing Daddy. There is something special about being called Dad, about being called Father. There is something that just warms a father's heart like nothing else than for his children to call him Daddy, Father. And that's what God desires of us. When we get saved, the adoption of sons, the act of bringing someone who is the offspring of another into one's own family. Maybe you know someone who has been involved in an adoption. Maybe you have adopted. It is an incredible illustration of what God does for us. Taking us from the family of Satan and placing us in the family of God where we believe, where we receive, and we are given the right, we, by God's authority, are called the sons of God. Where once we were lost in bondage, under the bondage of the world, in the slave market of sin, a child of the devil, he redeems us and he adopts us. Romans 8 Verses 15 and 16, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Ephesians 1 and verse number 5, Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. And as I made reference to just a few moments ago, John 1 and verse 12, But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. In the fullness of time, in the perfect time, with the perfect gifts, God provides the perfect redemption that we might be called the sons of God, adopted, taken out of the family of Satan where we were the child of the devil. He redeems us, He buys us back, and He makes us one of his children, that we are called by the authority of God himself. We have the authority of God, the right, the power of God to be called his child. And we see here, as we close, verse number seven, wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then heir of God through Christ. All glory be to God, hallelujah, on this Christmas day that we can be called a child of God. Thanks be unto God for this unspeakable gift. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this wonderful truth. Thank you for redeeming us, for buying us back. We didn't deserve it, Lord. Thank you for adopting us, making us your child. Thank you, Lord, for pointing us to our sin that we might see our need for the Savior and trust You and come to You in saving faith and repenting of our sin. Thank You for these wonderful truths, these doctrines of redemption and adoption. Thank You for sending Your Son in the fullness of time as the perfect gift to provide the perfect redemption. Lord, I pray that our hearts will be drawn to You. 
that we will, Lord, once again be uplifted and that you will be uplifted and praised for your unspeakable gift. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll stand and we'll do something a little bit unusual today as we close our service. We'll stand and turn to...